a Tory and a CIA officer talk UFOs. And maybe it's even in my family, but not today. You got to sign up for our 11 August 2022 event to do that. More on that later. This, of course, is the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex and Brian, where two reformed lawyers have a drink, have a laugh, and give our legion of loyal listeners and viewers a few nuggets of history you can use in your daily lives. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Leave us five stars if you feel we've earned it. And definitely join us on 11 August 2022. You will see an announcement on the Hidden History Happy Hour Twitter feed. Please click on it and set yourself a reminder. Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Alex, I think this is the only episode so far where we've had to actually do a little warning and disclaimer for the folks at home. If you are thinking of booking an airline flight anytime soon, pause, go book it, come back, because you're going to have some shit to think about. This is why I'm drinking a uh, grapefruit and vodka, because that's what I'm going to have to order every time I get on a plane from now on. How about you, Alex? I'm drinking beer today. I am uh, reverting to type. Fair enough. So today we're going to talk about some crazy aviation heroism. And in the end, these are good news stories, I think, yep. both of them. But strap in because you're in for a wild ride. Alex, what do we have today? Uh, first of all, we're going to tell the story of British Airways Flight 5390. Morning of 10th of June, 1990. BA flight out of Birmingham to Malaga takes off as normal. 87 souls on board. Take off without a hitch. Very experienced crew in the cockpit. Everyone takes off their shoulder belts. Then nightmare uh the left side of the cockpit windscreen blew out and we state the obvious this is not supposed to happen uh but it did captain tim lancaster at the helm of the aircraft was propelled out of the window by the decompression or rather his top half was his legs were caught on the flight control panel for a moment which allowed his colleagues to grab hold of him by the legs most of him is outside the aircraft and he, he you know you think about the, oh, the pressure it's keeping him out there and they can't possibly pull him back in uh, and his head is being banged repeatedly against the, the fuselage um the door of the cabin is blown in by the air autopilot is off by the way the plane goes into a dive the throttle was trapped by the door that was jammed open and Lancaster's legs across uh, the cockpit, speeding the plane up. And all this detritus from the main cabin swirls in napkins and stuff, just blows around into the flight deck, which doesn't uh, help. And his colleagues are hanging on to Lancaster literally for dear life. And the plane is plummeting very fast. The announcement to take the brake position was made, and I feel confident, Brian, that on this occasion they believed it to be necessary. Uh, guy got Alistair Atchison, uh, the uh, first officer, got the plane back onto an even keel at a lower height and engaged the autopilot. Uh, 
The lower height part is important because there wasn't enough oxygen on board right. for everyone, and he needed to find altitude with better air pressure to keep everybody alive. And to state the obvious, he needed to land. Uh, he'd made a mayday signal, didn't know if anyone could hear it, was the, uh, all the noise that's going on in the cockpit. All the while, Captain Lancaster is still banging, uh, bang, bang, bang on the side of the plane. And frankly, his colleagues who were still hanging on to him thought that he was dead. Yeah, uh, but his, they hang on. His body was swiftly suffering from frostbite in the cold, quite apart from the repeated collisions with the airframe. And indeed, the, the cold was so bad that the stewards who were holding on to him got frostbite as well. <laughs> and they were exhausted. But on Atchison's instructions, they kept hanging on to him out of respect and also because they didn't want him to go out the window and into the engine. So there was a reason to hang on to their captain. Finally, they could hear ground control. Atchison's the co-pilot, right? Correct. So imagine uh, the, 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 the training that had to kick in to make him think not just about landing the plane, but also about the cabin pressure for the passengers and the respect for the what he must have assumed was the dead body of his colleague. Correct. He finally is able to hear ground control at a lower altitude when things have steadied, and they're cleared to land at Southampton Airport, which I think is fair because I don't think there were many more high-priority flights at the <laughs> right. time. And by the way, Lancaster is, in fact, alive. Um, Atchison safely lands the plane with his pilot flapping around out of the window. And I know that people in aviation like to be cynical and say they've all seen it all before, but I doubt the guys in the control tower had seen this. Probably. Um, uh, their captain emerged with a couple of minor fractures, frostbites, and, no surprise, shock. Uh, otherwise, he was okay and back to flying in, uh, in under six months. The crew members of the flight uh, deservedly received medals for their conduct that day, Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air, and Atchison received uh, what's called the Polaris Award, which is the highest decoration in civil aviation. Now, Brian, you may be wondering, why did the window blow in? And uh, aviation uh, air accident investigators did as well. It turned out that when it was installed, most of the bolts used were too narrow, and those that weren't too narrow were too short. How reassuring. <laughs> And Wait, there were are, there also some narrow and too short ones? I'm sure there were. Too, well, if they were too narrow, it didn't make a difference either way. Okay. Um, but so there are two types of, of windscreen, uh, which this accident has forced me to learn. The first is fitted from the inside plug, which is held in by pressure. The second is the fitted from the outside type, which is blown off by pressure. This was the latter. Mm. But, you know, accidents happen, which isn't the lesson from this story. Chances of them happening should be minimized. And uh, lessons should be learned in maintenance routines and manufacturing and where appropriate negligent people should be punished and, and so on. This was fully investigated. By the way, the aircraft returned to service and continued flying until 2001. It was in, it was in the air for another 11 years uh, afterwards. The, the lessons, I think, from, uh, of the story are threefold, having had the investigation and so forth. Uh, and they all come about the co-pilot, the first officer. Yeah. First in a crisis don't panic. Second, remember your training. You know what to do if only you can remember lesson one. Right. Don't panic. And third, it's a great lesson for life. Don't give up on your colleagues. There may be more life in them than you think. Yeah. I don't think I have a flight, Alex, until we're going to see each other in Germany <laughs> later in the year. So I'm kind of glad. And I got to have another drink of my little Greyhound here. Yeah, um, cheers. Wow, that's 
you know, there's a long tradition uh, in both of our countries of most of the civilian pilot corps coming from military pilots. Right. And one of my favorite books and movies ever, I think it's yours too, I'm not sure, is The Right Stuff uh, by Tom Wolfe talking about the astronaut program. And the book opens, I don't think the movie opens this way, but the book opens with this long discussion about the calming voice that you hear from an airline pilot. And the way Wolf describes it is sort of like a little bit of a West Virginia draw where he says, folks, uh, nothing to worry about here. We're just going to cruise out over the ocean about 300 miles and dump most of our fuel because we got some issues and we'll just be coming back in for a smooth landing in National Airport in a few minutes. And that, of course, is the voice of Chuck Yeager, which generations of airline pilots adopted as the calming voice. Right. And I think... What Jaeger would say about that is it has nothing to do with my voice. It has to do with the fact that I spent so many hours training and I spent so many hours in the air that I knew that my job really was not flying the airplane. It was not crashing the airplane when shit went wrong. And this is where Atchison, is that his name? Atchison? Yeah. Atchison. Yeah. This is where Atchison comes in and is such a hero because as I said, the, 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 the ability to kind of segment your brain to right. not only focus on, God, I hope we land this thing and don't kill everyone, but also rescuing his comrade who he must have given up for mostly dead, oh, <laughs> to well, quote yeah, Princess Bride, um, and also uh, focus on the, the passengers is amazing. And in, in the military tradition in both of our countries, there's this leave no man, no one behind. And it's a, it's a moral and an ethical standpoint, but it's also a very practical one, right? Because you want your people, you want your brothers and sisters in arms to know that you won't give up on them. And this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, that's right. Great story, huh? That's uh, amazing. And uh, let's just, oh, oh, I have a question, uh, which you may not know the answer to, but I just put it out there to the uh, aeronautical engineers who are fans of the show. Why would you ever, particularly after this incident, construct the passenger aircraft so that the presumption pressure is that blows the it pressure? Out. Yeah. Why, why, why do they even still do that? I wonder. I don't know if they still do it. Um, I'm tell you a couple of things. It might be to do with ease and cost in manufacturing. There may be some, some designs where it's just better to do that. And they may have improved those systems. The second is that in most of these aircraft you can they can still open the window it's not apparently it's not it's not as dangerous as you think at certain altitudes to to open um open a window and and indeed a lot of the requirements i think are there to be able to open the window so in certain circumstances if your view is obscured or occluded um elsewhere then you can be as literally as open the window and have a look out um so it's not actually as completely uh daft as, as it might sound but um it's a very still a very good question so this is a great story of heroism coming in the form of defensive action, right? These guys were just doing their jobs, right? Shit hit the fan. Thankfully, their pilot didn't hit the fan um, and, and, and they were able to recover from it. But I think your next story is uh, offensive heroism, right? Like Correct. not just defending, but uh, using the air to uh, miraculously pursue uh, success in wartime. 
well put. It's a story about a guy who uh, made a lot of people feel uncomfortable outside of his military life by talking about how much he enjoyed killing people. Um, this is the story of the Falcon of Malta. The siege of Malta in the Second World War had many heroes. Um, the island was awarded a collective George Cross uh, by George VI uh, for its courageous resistance against Germany. And George, I'm going to say Bürling. It's my best effort at his uh, surname, which is spelled B-E-U-R-R-B-E-U-R-L-I-N-G. It sounds right, but I'm sure we'll get corrected. We will get, I will get corrected. Thank God it's not a Dutch name. That's what people really get excited about. But I'm going to say Bürling. He had plenty of flying hours uh, when the war was declared, and he had passed his commercial pilot exams, but his native Canadian uh, Air Force required academic qualifications that he didn't have. So very determined, he took the hazardous sea journey to the UK uh, to join the RAF. By the way, he did that journey twice because he forgot his birth certificate the first time. So he had to go back and get it. And Let me make sure I understand back. that because I read that in the amazing uh, book, Lessons from History, which the sequel is coming out, more Lessons from History in a couple of months. You're saying he transited the Atlantic on a yep. ship in the face of German U-boats, yep. got to the UK, went yep. to some sort of admission station. They go, sorry, no birth certificate. He went back again to get it? Correct. Did that they not exactly have the postal service in those days? Or Look, for whatever reason, the, the easiest <laughs> or simplest way was uh, maybe enough. he didn't have someone he could ask to post it, but very good question. He went back. And maybe he didn't have one, right? Because sometimes you've got to go and get it produced True. by the authorities. So yeah. good question. Either way, all I know about it is he definitely went twice uh, in order to join the RF at the Royal Air Force. And his traders, uh, his trainer paid tribute to his skills as a pilot and uh, and uh, attributed um, and said he had great skills as a, um, as a shot as well. He was a very good shot. Mm. And importantly, for our purposes, Brian, he was brave as hell. And yeah. soon he was flying uh, supermarine Spitfires, uh, escorting bombers and flying fighter missions. And he claimed his first kill over the English Channel. But he wasn't going to remain on um, British duties for long. They were asked to volunteer without knowing where they were going. He volunteered and he was soon posted to Malta. Three days after he arrived on the island, he and his comrades were in action against German Mischerschmitz, and he chalked up his first Maltese score, which was damaged rather than a kill, because you need witnesses were required for accreditation right. of these things. He didn't have them for this one, so it was just damaged. Thereafter, the spree gets going in earnest, mostly in combat against Italian fighters. He notched up five kills in four days. I mean, the siege is happening like day after day in real time. Uh, is, here, and there aren't many planes. Is it the case, Alex, uh, in, in your air forces, as it is in ours, that five kills is, makes you an ace? Is that a thing? Uh, I, that, that I've heard several times. I'm not sure on the number. Okay. But uh, certainly he's an ace very quickly. He earned it because, either way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Five kills in four days. Further two, a couple of days later, his fame begins to spread. And of course, these things aren't all one way, inevitably. Right. Uh, he was significantly shot up on several occasions himself. So we can add luck to his attributes. Great shot, great pilot, brave as hell, mm -hmm. very lucky. As he emerged unscathed each time. Got partial credit on an Italian bomber, was awarded the Distinguished Fly Medal. Then his biggest day, 27th of July, 1942, shot down two Italian muckies and two Mischerschmitts in okay. one day. And one of each of those was reckoned to be the best of the Italian and German air forces, respectively, uh, in the, the that theatre of war. And, and a, he, he was added, a bar was added to his distinguished um, fly medal, which is getting the medal a second time. Had a bout of dysentery, which left him bed bound for some time. Soon after he returned to active duty, he was shot down 
crash landed on Malta with nothing but a small cut on his arm to show for it. And he hitchhiked back to base uh, with, with a civilian. Um, several more kills later, he received the DFC, the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is a hell of a medal. Yeah. Uh, and this crash landing incident that I mentioned, Brian, is one of the four times he was shot down over Malta. The fourth and last was in the course of the Maltese defense, and he bailed out into the sea, over the sea. He was injured to his torso. He was injured to his foot. He had a very bad arm injury. Sent back to the United Kingdom to convalesce. The aircraft he was aboard crash landed, and he was one of the few oh survivors. God. This guy's life is extraordinary. So people would, would wonder, why was he so good? Fast instincts and reflexes, certainly and strong nerves because his habit was to engage at very close quarters, mm. which most other pilots would avoid. Uh, and they figured this contributed to his skill count, but he also had great dedication because he thought nonstop about the, the art, uh, the mm. craft mm. Of, of flying fighter uh, planes. He sought to improve at every turn. He asked people what they, what happened with them. He was constantly trying to learn. He didn't engage in off-duty hijinks, which pilots are you know, famously uh, fond of to relieve themselves of the Also covered stress. well in the red stuff, yep. Uh, and elsewhere. Uh, I was thinking of Top Gun, but yes. Yes. And whatever factors we might credit his abilities with, his 27 kills made him the most successful defender of Malta in a conflict that was decided in the air. And he received the Distinguished Service Order later in 1942. I want to make one point, which is that, of course, war is a horrible business. And we remember that each of these boasted kills had people on the other end. Yeah. And no man is an island entire unto himself and so on and so forth. But we also remember that but for men like Berling, Malta would have fallen to the control of evil fascists in a war that was just about the most clean cut battle between right and wrong that I think yeah. we're ever going to see. So um, good for him. After his success, his fame was deployed by his superiors. He was tasked with promoting war bonds. So you know, people mm. would, would, invent, would give money to the, the state and get it back uh, later. This was not a success, um, though in some ways a poster boy for the armed services. Uh, he was a teetotaler, completely focused on his work. He was given to very excessively blunt remarks. We always begin and end by telling his audience how much he'd enjoyed killing people. Yeah. Uh, and he returned, therefore, to um, squadron duties, but as a trainer. Also, I'm afraid, not a success. Away from the front line, Burling's uh, thirst for adrenaline pumping moments had less productive outcomes. Stunts and tricks in the air became his passion, and he was criticized a great deal. Um, he was moved around a lot. And if I read between the lines, Brian, I think it's clear that those who commanded him didn't quite know what to do with yeah. this hero they'd been lumbered with. Other people would have been canned for the insubordination that he showed. Burling, they just kept moving on. Um, a short, uh, short stint uh, back on frontline duties saw his last kill uh, for the Allies before he was discharged uh, from our armed forces in 1944, when you would think we could still use a pilot. Um, he was he unsuccessfully... So, well, sorry, sorry, sorry. He was distar discharged during the war? Yeah, he was discharged in 1944. Oh. He tried to join the US Air Force and uh, was unsuccessful in that. Plainly, word of this, how difficult it was to manage this guy had got around. And forever keen to return to the thick of things when the war had ended and he joined the Israeli Air Force, who clearly were going to have um, a number of, of combats ahead of them on anyone's reckoning. But I'm afraid he was destined not to fight for them because after a test flight, uh, Berlin crashed his plane in Rome coming into land less than a week after Israel 
uh, had declared its independence and um, his luck had finally run out. His 10th crash uh, was his last. Um, that infant democracy took him uh, to its bosom. He is buried in Israel, uh, a proud and independent-minded state that chose well when taking on this stubborn warrior who was spurned by the others that he had served. And his story, I think it's fair to say, did not get the final glory that he had wanted, but he will always be remembered as the Falcon of Malta. Mm. Well, I'm I'm sorry uh, that our Air Force rejected him. Uh, it's probably worth uh, maybe a, a follow-up in the next uh, version of Lessons of History. And I'm actually going to, as I think you know, Israel later in this year. So maybe you can point me towards where I can find his memorial. What Do you know, it may be a macabre thing to point out. There is an amazing amount of interest in where, where people are buried in the world. And Find a Grave will tell you Ah. where people of almost any note and many, many who are not of historical notes are, are buried. So that will not be difficult, actually. Okay. All right. Well, as a, as a viewer of The Walking Dead, I want to find the undead graves. That's going to be okay, well, it's, that's, that's that's a little a bit other more difficult, fish, yeah. a little more mobile. But I, I love that the Israelis um, did him honor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he never actually made it to Israel, I don't think. I think the, they declared their independence at a week of being a country and he, he crashed and died. And I think it's a very sad ending to a remarkably brave man. He was obviously a very difficult man, but also a very brave man's um, life. And I, um, when I go to Malta, I'm going to try and find out, see if there's any um, memorial to him there too. Yeah. One question I had about this story, which is as always a great one is why was the defense of Malta such, and you may not know, but why was the defense of Malta at the time such a secret that you had to volunteer to go to a place that they didn't tell you? Oh, so many people were asked to volunteer for assignments on the without telling them on the basis that need to know meant if you weren't going to volunteer, you didn't need to know. Right. And we were terrified, even though actually there was basically no successful German penetration of, of British um, society on, in espionage in the Second World War. I mean, obviously, we leaked like sieves afterwards, and the Cold War right. was too. It was very heavily influenced by British traitors um, going off and opening their mouths. There was almost no. But, um, uh, successful intervention. You may recall that the, the, the double cross program, the 20 committee right. XX, uh, which, which was reversing that, that was so successful in catching and turning people who the Germans yeah. had approached that basically they had no operation left in the UK and German records after the war confirmed that too. But nevertheless, we were really worried about it yeah. and you wouldn't tell someone about many missions until they had actually volunteered for it. Is that is the double cross? Is that covered in the um, what's it called? Operation the Imposter Game. Uh, it, it's this. Well, the, the most famous operation of that story is the man, of that unit was the man who never was. Right. Uh, right, the, right, the, right. the body put in the sea and so forth. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Well, you know, the guy had the fight in him, and he was going to fight no matter what. And it's, it's right. It, there, there. This history is legion with these stories, right? Of people who, when your country is in mortal peril you absolutely need them full stop doesn't really matter that's the guy you want when you're in peacetime you don't want them anywhere near the levers of government yeah look i it's you got to, there's many of the heroes i talk about in the book you wonder how successful a life they would have had in civilian life the other thing is that people will have given them there's a great thing about about society that recognizes a debt that it owes you. And sometimes for one reason or another, I told a story about the Korean War recently and the veterans who returned from the Korean War returned to, especially in Britain, a society that exhausted by the Second World War yeah. had almost no interest in people's sacrifice and heroism. We, we let ourselves down with a generation of guys, many of whom were um, 
conscripted, many of whom yeah. uh, were, were not volunteers or anything. Um, we let ourselves down by not recognizing the remarkable things that they had done and gone through and endured. But after the Second World War, I think there was a there was a great deal more sort of latitude. And I don't just mean schemes for universities and things. Well, I mean, in society, there was a great deal more latitude. And one difference between your society and mine, I think, is that in the United States, I think more people know someone in the military or know someone who knows someone, as in know someone who's related to or is in their yeah. family and so forth. And we have um, we've slimmed the ranks of our serving uh, forces of every discipline to the extent that that's not quite the same um, once as it was. And I'm not, you know, it, perhaps it's it's good to have a smaller professional force, albeit I think clearly now too small. And in the face of the threats we face, we're going to have to grow it back out again. Yes. But that is a significant cultural difference, I think, between two countries which share so much, yours and mine. But it's also to some extent true in my country. I was just literally today reading an article about how some huge percentage of the our forces all volunteer now and some right. huge percentage come from uh the u.s uh southern states so you know florida alabama mississippi the, sure. the whole south and in those states a lot of people have family members or close friends who have served in the military but in most of the rest of the country we really don't and that's I don't think we're at the point where we need universal conscription. I don't no. think we're even close to that. But the idea that that's not socially healthy to draw right. all your military force from one area. Yeah. Right. And in the Vietnam War, it was the opposite. It was sort of underprivileged, um, right. you know, racially discriminated people. But now it's I don't know. We just don't have the right balance. But well, my dad would always say that. Um, national service, you know, the, the period of time when you had to go and 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 serve in one aspect or another was one of the was the only time in a sort of quite class-based society in which everyone was in together and yeah. um everyone you know without distinction of, of birth or rank or um, i mean obviously rank in the literal military sense but in no sense of social rank um and that that, uh, that was one of the side benefits of, of that time that has been overlooked yeah anyway great, great stuff. story Malta. amazing cheers cheers Falcon thanks Malta. brian good to see you Hey, we will see all of you uh, in two days on 11 August in our live Twitter Spaces event. Please write us and let us know which sort of gin I should try because you will be held accountable. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.